Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2008 Schulman Lectures, presented by Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, address the topic of religion and the Big Bang and explore how contemporary scientific, philosophical, and religious thinkers endeavored to define and bridge the boundaries between scientific cosmology and religion. In this lecture, Guy Consolmano, S.J., astronomer at the Vatican Astrophysical Observatory, speaks on the question, Heaven or Heat Death? Christian and Scientific Perspectives on the End of the Universe. I've always been tempted when I come up with that kind of introduction to start the talk like this, so you're thinking you're getting a little Italian. I'm from Detroit, what can I do? I couldn't keep it up. Um, I'm going to start out with this wonderful picture, which is on the ceiling of the Jesuit College in Prague. And it's fascinating for a number of reasons. You've got these little putties looking at the stars through telescopes, and around each star is a cycle of planets. To remind you that the idea of studying space is something that has been considered angelic for a long time. And, and this is, of course, what the typical astronomers of those days looked like. Uh, more to the point, if you do point your telescope at stars, if you point your telescope at any position at random, in any given direction, you see a lot of stars. And the longer you look, the fainter the stars you see. There is a thing called Olber's paradox that says if the universe was infinite, then eventually, no matter where you'd looked, and, and, and uniformly full of stars, you would eventually always have a star wherever you looked, and the sky should be completely white. That doesn't happen because our galaxy is not infinite. Our galaxy is finite. It's pretty big, but once you look to a certain dimness, you don't see any more stars. In fact, most of the really faint things in this picture are not stars at all, but galaxies. Because we learned about 100 years ago that ours is not the only galaxy. And one of the great ironies is that, in fact, if you use a CCD chip and you expose a really long time, at about 25th magnitude, the sky does turn white with galaxies. Olber's paradox suddenly, finally kicks in. But the other interesting thing about galaxies is that galaxies are not uniformly distributed in the universe, but they come in lumps. And this circle here is a bunch of blobs there. Each of those blobs is a galaxy, and that is a cluster of galaxies. More nearby clusters you can see as individual galaxies of stars. Every one of these lumps is hundreds of millions of light years away. Every one of those lumps is a collection of hundreds of thousands to hundreds of millions to billions of stars. And as far as we know, there's something like 200 billion galaxies in the visible universe. But galaxies are not distributed uniformly. Rather, you find lumps of 10 or 20 or, or 30 galaxies in a lump, and then an enormous amount of empty space, and then another lump of 10 or 20 or 30 galaxies. Now, galaxies, stars, planets, you and I all have mass which is to say, according to the laws of gravity, we should be attracting each other with a very weak force, but a force that's real nonetheless and you know, causes things to fall when we, we let go of them. Why doesn't the moon fall out of the sky and hit the Earth? It's not a trivial question. And the short answer for the non-science majors in the audience is that the centrifugal force of the moon's motion around the Earth exactly balances the gravitational pull pulling them together. It's because the moon is moving. Why don't the planets fall into the sun? Because the motion of the planets around creates a kind of centrifugal force which balances the force of gravity of the sun. Why don't the stars in the galaxy fall together? Because they're going around the center of the galaxy. Why don't the clusters of galaxies fall together? Well, in some cases they do but mostly they're moving around a common center of mass. So this raises the question, is there a center of the universe that the universe is moving around? And if there isn't, why doesn't the universe fall together? The answer to the first question is no, there's not a center of the universe, in spite of all the Harvard graduates you may have met. 
you, you, you know how many, uh, light how many Harvard graduates it takes to screw in a light bulb? He holds up the light bulb and the universe revolves around him. Um, I was two years at Harvard, so I, I had to deal with that. But this raises a bigger question. If, and when you look at the motions of galaxies and clusters of galaxies, you do not see them moving as if they're going around a center, then why don't they fall together? If the universe is infinite and eternal, the way that everyone going back to Aristotle assumed, then eternal is kind of like long enough that things should have fallen together if they were going to do that. So why didn't they do that? That was a thing that the guy on the right here was very worried about. You recognize him with the wild hair. What's holding the universe up, in essence? He came up with a theory called the general theory of relativity that showed, that, that, that presumed and mathematically showed how gravity warps space itself. What we think of as a gravitational attraction is, in fact, the warping of what used to be straight lines into curved lines by the presence of mass. But if gravity warps space, all of the mass of, if mass warps space, all of the mass of all the galaxies and all the clusters of galaxies ought to be warping space into itself, and it didn't. He wanted to know why. He proposed in his equations that maybe there was some cosmological counterforce that he just sort of pulled out of his rear end because he couldn't figure out what else could be doing it. But he was very unhappy with that because he thought it was an inelegant way of looking at the universe. Now, the guy on the right with the familiar-looking collar also had a familiar-looking ring. He's got a PhD from MIT. His name was Georges Lemaitre. He was a diocesan priest from Belgium. He was not a Jesuit. He insisted that he was not a Jesuit. He was really irritated when people called him a Jesuit. You know, you can be smart and be a priest without being a Jesuit. Um, I'm here as a brother, so you could be smart and be a Jesuit without being a priest. Right. Anyway, he was a mathematician. He was studied primarily as a mathematician. As a mathematician, he could read equations the way that an English major can read poetry. He could see the equations and understand they spoke to him. They, they told him things without him having to calculate down what is each word doing, what is each sentence, what is each period. No, he could read them. And, and he was intimately familiar with what the theory of general relativity was saying. And he saw in the equations what Einstein didn't see, the possibility of a universe that was in and of itself starting from some very high quantum state and expanding. And it's not a universe that has a lot of stuff moving out into empty space. Because remember, the whole point of relativity is that matter warps space. Rather, it is space itself which is expanding. And that this was a property of the universe that was built into the mathematical laws that Einstein had uncovered to describe what he called general relativity. If that were so, then you ought to be able to see the expansion. Now, you're not going to see that, you know, you're slowly moving away from me. The expansion is not on that scale. You're not going to see the Earth slowly moving away from Jupiter. It's not on that scale. You're not going to see the stars in our galaxy moving away from each other. It's not at that scale. You're not going to see our galaxy moving away from the Andromeda galaxy, because we're part of the same cluster of galaxies. But the expansion occurs in the space between the clusters of galaxies. Um, Lemaitre had a good buddy in England named Fred Hoyle, who was, you know, you read about Fred Hoyle, he'd say, oh, he was anti-religious, he hated Catholics, he was anti-clerical. He was a good friend of George Lemaitre's. They went on vacations together. Hoyle had a different theory other than this theory, and to kind of tweak his buddy, he kept referring to this theory as the Big Bang Theory. Now, he was, Hoyle was a, and Lemaitre was a mathematician. Lemaitre didn't use a telescope, but he knew somebody who did. Edwin Hubble, the guy here, was at the same time that Lemaitre was coming up with this theory, actually observing clusters of galaxies. And you can see in his very early data, with a lot of scatter, 
you can see in later data with just as much scatter, but from one to two is like from there to there on this little plot. So we've got now data going a lot further out. You can actually see that the farther away the galaxies are, the faster they are moving from it. Not only are the galaxies moving away, but the farther away they are. The fa Think about this. If all of the universe that we can see were in one point and it starts expanding at different speeds, like the bits of an explosion, the things that travel the farthest after a certain period of time are the things that are going the fastest, right? So the things that I see moving the fastest ought to be the things that are the farthest. And that's exactly what you're seeing. The things that are the farthest are the things moving the fastest. There is no center point because imagine three little lumps. Let's see the three of you were running a race and you're the fastest and you're in the middle and you're the slowest. From the point of view of you, the other two people seem to be falling behind. From the point of view of you, the other two people seem to be moving ahead. From the point of view of the one in the middle, the two people seem to be moving away from you. But if there's a whole row of you working that way, then each person is going to think that I'm normal and the people in front of me are moving away and the people behind me are moving away. And it's not just because you didn't wear deodorant that day. It's the nature of an expansion of different speeds from a common point. The other thing you can do with this is calculate backwards. Given how fast things are moving, how far away they are now, how long ago must it have been when they were at all the same point? And that represents, in a certain way, the age of the universe. The amount of time since everything was at this original point. Now, light travels at a finite speed, travels at the speed of light, which means the really far galaxies that we can see with our telescope, this is a, an image that Hubble took by looking at what was supposed to be the blankest, dullest, nothing interesting there part of the sky so that there was no big galaxy getting in the way. You could look at all the really distant galaxies. All those little numbers represent how far away things are. The farther away the galaxy, the farther back in time you are looking. And the cool thing is, even though they're just fuzzy dots at this point, you can compare many of the characteristics of faraway galaxies compared to galaxies of the same size and roughly the same shape today and see that the old galaxies really were different. They've got different morphology. They've got different amount of chemical elements. Things were different in the past. So that means, if nothing else, the universe really has changed over time. We can not only calculate and extrapolate backwards into what the past looked like, we can observe the past. We can actually test these things. One of the people doing this kind of work is a fellow named Jose Funes, who's my boss at the Vatican Observatory, an astronomer from Chile who uses our Vatican telescope to look at nearby galaxies and to compare against the galaxies you see in the, the Hubble deep sky image. Indeed, you can even look back and find evidence of what the universe was like before there were galaxies, when all of the energy and all of the mass of the universe was in one very, very tiny spot. And you do that by looking at the radiation that was first visible about 300,000 years after the zero point, the, the point of the Big Bang. You do that by looking in space at the cosmic microwave background. Now, this is an image that was very famous about 15 years ago, taken by something called the COBE spacecraft. And the colors show the variation of the background radiation. Now, you've got this entire universe packed into a very small area that's busy expanding. There's a lot of energy. Some of that energy gets turned into mass, and the mass becomes you and me. But a lot of the energy doesn't get turned into mass. It's still very, very energetic photons, except that the space that they're expanding into is bigger, so that over time, the wavelength of the photons gets stretched out, so that today, the photons have a wavelength 
equivalent to a temperature of about 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. And you're asking, is that degrees Fahrenheit or degrees Celsius? You know, it doesn't really matter when it's that cold, but it turns out it's Celsius. By putting a satellite in space, they were looking to see, is this background radiation uniform everywhere? And they found, oh, in some cases it's red shifted to us, in some cases blue shifted. Well, that's because the Earth is going around the sun. And that's, we're just moving towards it, moving away from it. Get rid of that. Oh, well, there's this big thing in the middle. That's where the Milky Way is. Okay, get rid of the, the motions of the Milky Way. And you still are finding very tiny fluctuations. Fluctuations not inconsistent with the universe eventually breaking up into lumps the size of clusters of galaxies. I put this up mostly because it's a pretty picture. Sometimes it's a picture that you may have seen and no, nobody may have really explained it to you before and I'm not sure how well I explained it to you. I put this up mostly to remind you that the Big Bang isn't just some guy's theory. It is a very detailed, organized description of the way we actually observe the universe in lots of different ways. And I've only given you a couple of dozens of different lines of argument that the Big Bang helps organize into one con consistent, coherent theory. The other implication of the Big Bang, however, is that since we can extrapolate back and come up with a reasonable idea what the universe was like at the beginning, can we make some statements about what it's going to be like at the end? If the universe is expanding, does it expand forever? Or do you reach a point where, like having, uh, you know, the, the, this is expanding against the gravity of the Earth until it stops and comes back down because I didn't throw it up fast enough. If I throw it up faster, I may hit the roof, but eventually it would come back down. If I throw it up really fast, it leaves the Earth and goes off into space and never comes back. How fast is the universe expanding compared to the amount of mass in the universe? If it expands fast enough, we have an open universe, it keeps expanding forever. If it doesn't expand fast enough, we have a closed universe, eventually it turns around and collapses in on itself. So, is our universe opened or closed? It depends on this balance, the balance between the initial push that caused the Big Bang to bang versus the gravity that wants to pull it all back together again. Now, if you actually go and add up all of the stars that we can see and you say how much stuff is there compared to how much mass you'd have to have to make it a closed universe, we're undermassive by a factor of about 25. So you say, oh, well, it's clearly it's open. There's nothing more to say. Except, when you look at some of those galaxies, you see that the stars are going around the center of the galaxy, just the way I said. That's why they don't fall into the center of the galaxy. But you can measure how fast the stars are moving, and when you do, you discover that they're moving at a rate that is not consistent with the mass you see there, according to the laws of gravity. The way that the stars move around the disk tells you that there is a lot of mass pulling them in their orbits that we cannot see. In fact, there's way more mass than we cannot see than there is mass we can see. And there are more subtle arguments that, that also come to the same conclusion that, you know, using subatomic particles, you know, the, all sorts of, of things I don't even want to get into because it's not the point of this talk. There's more to the universe that meets the eye. We call this mass dark matter. Remember I showed you those pictures of, uh, that Hubble and others did of how fast something's moving and how far away it was. About five years ago, people making these very subtle measurements discovered that the really, really distant things were in fact not lying on the line that said it was a, limit, you know, a constant acceleration, constant growth of the Big Bang, but that, in fact, it looks very much like the universe is not only expanding, but it's expanding faster and faster than it used to. The expansion of the universe is itself accelerating. And 
This can be explained if it turns out that Einstein was right in having this cosmological constant, in proposing that there was some kind of energy that worked contrary to gravity. It's not enough to say that the Big Bang means you didn't need this cosmological constant, because the Big Bang didn't disprove the existence of a cosmological constant. In fact, we're now seeing evidence of a cosmological constant. Whatever that energy is that's pushing things out and causing it to expand, we don't know what it is. We can't see it any other way. Therefore, it's dark, because we can't see it. So we call it dark energy. What do we know about dark energy? Should I repeat that? That's basically the state of our knowledge of the physics at this point. A few years ago, there was another probe, the microwave anisotropy probe, that tried to measure very carefully the microwaves and the shape of the universe and the curvature of the universe. And as its first results came out, this email went to everybody at the University of Arizona. These are all the people who got the email. And the email was just this number, that's the Hubble constant. This, the age of the universe, 13.7 billion years. The flatness of the universe, which was 1.00. In other words, the universe isn't warping up and, and becoming super open or super closed. It's right at that critical, right at that. Whatever gravity is trying to do to warp things closed is exactly balanced by the dark energy warping things open. And 4.04 of the universe is the kind of matter that you and I are made out of. 23% of the universe is dark matter. And 73% of the universe is this dark energy that we don't know anything about. So three quarters of the universe is made up of stuff that we don't understand. The simplest model for the universe suggests that it ought to be flat. It has just enough mass to balance the open and the closed side. And such a universe should expand forever. Extrapolating madly from the data at hand, it looks like the time may come when the other clusters of galaxies are moving away from us at an ever faster rate until they seem to be moving away from us faster than the speed of light. That doesn't violate the laws of relativity because they're not actually moving through space. It's that space is moving such that their bit of space is moving from our bit of space. And space is expanding faster than the speed of light. When that happens, we in our little cluster of galaxies will no longer be able to see the other clusters of galaxies. We will no longer be able to see that the universe is expanding. It turns out at that time, the universe will be so big that the background radiation will be at a wavelength that gets absorbed. So we would never see the background radiation. If we were astronomers living in that epoch, we would never know that the universe was expanding, that it had a beginning point, and that it has this kind of interesting end. Which makes you wonder, what is it about the universe that we don't know now, and we don't know we don't know? What happens when the other galaxy clusters have moved away from us and we can't see them is that we will appear to be all alone in the universe. Just us and the local stars. And the local stars themselves won't burn forever. On the other hand, it's always possible, since we, we came up with this answer by wildly extrapolating. And you know, unlike the Big Bang, we can't look back in time to check our theories, because we don't have telescopes that look, can look into the future. It could be that, some, that maybe this dark energy decays with time. Maybe dark matter decays with time. It could be that the universe actually accelerates even more and becomes a big rip, or the acceleration dies and it becomes a big crunch. We don't know. But for the purposes of this lecture and this lecture series, what we can say is that this extrapolation of our astronomy provides us not only a picture of what the universe looked like from its beginning 13.7 billion years ago,
it does give us hints of possible fates. It does give us something to speculate about when we speculate about the end of the universe. Probably we're going to spread out forever, but alternately we could have a big crunch, maybe reappearing as another Big Bang, as another universe. And, you know, suddenly you can write science fiction stories based on that, it's, which A. Van Vo was doing back in the 1940s. The astronomical solution to the question of the end of the universe isn't the only kind of scientific answer available. Instead of relying on the overall motions of huge clusters of galaxies full of billions of stars, we can also look at the very smallest bits of ordinary matter in the universe, molecules and atoms. And we can see how the laws of thermodynamics describe how their motions tend from order to disorder and what that tells us about how the universe ultimately behaves. There's this old joke among thermodynamicists that there are three laws of thermodynamics. The three laws are you can't win, you can't break even, and you can't get out of the game. What do we mean? What do we mean you can't win? It's like going to a casino. Okay, 100 people show up to the casino with money in their pocket. At the end of the day, that's all the money there is at the casino. That's all the money there is to play with. Some of it's going to get rearranged. Some of it's going to move from one pocket to another. But in the grand scheme of things, no wealth has been created. Nothing new has come out of the casino that wasn't brought in. There's only so much money to go around. There's no reason why the casino wheel is going to favor one person over another. In essence, that's the first law of thermodynamics. That's what you can say about mass and energy in the universe. Whatever stuff there is in the universe at the time of the Big Bang, that's how much stuff there is now. There's no reason to believe that any of it has been created or destroyed. You can turn energy into mass, you can turn mass into energy, but the sum of mass energy stays the same. You can't win. You can't get anything more than what we started with. Now, if anybody here has actually gone to a casino, you realize that that's, in fact, optimistic. You can't break even. The house always takes its cut. Somebody's got to pay for all the, the glitz and the neon. The amount of money taken on by the gamblers at the end of the day is always, on average, going to be less than the amount of money brought in. You can't break even. And that's also true in the world of energy for reasons reminiscent of a casino, but a little bit more complicated. So let me give you um, a short lesson in thermo. Ironically, coming here at Yale, where a lot of this stuff was invented. So you, you know energy can be thought of as heat. Heat is a, is a familiar form of energy. Heat always flows from hot to cold. And yes, you can do things to move heat from cold to hot, but that takes more energy. You can run refrigerators, but refrigerators have to be plugged in. You can think of heat as representing the motions of atoms. The hotter the atom is, the faster it moves. Now, picture what happens when you mix hot and cold atoms together. If I bring a pot of hot gas atoms into a room full of cold gas atoms and pull the cork, the hot and the cold get mixed together. And they stay mixed. So the pot has cooled off because the pot was the one that was full of hot atoms, and the room has warmed up. So the amount of energy is the same, but no longer how long I wait, the heat is never going to flow back out of the room and into the pot. The pot never gets spontaneously hotter than the rest of the room, even though there's no change in energy even though there's still the same number of hot and cold atoms as there used to be. Something fundamental must have changed when I opened the pot, because the hot atoms have gone out and there's no way to get them back in. That something fundamental that's changed, we have a name for. We call it entropy. Let's pretend for a moment that our atoms are really big, or our room is really small, and there's only room in the room for six atoms. Four of the atoms are in the room, and two of the atoms are in the pot. And I'm going to paint the hot atoms red and the cold atoms green so you can keep track of them. So 
here's my room, here's the original glass with the two hot atoms. I open it up and the hot atoms and the cold atoms can move around in all sorts of different permutations. How many different ways can I arrange those six atoms so that I have two hot ones and you know, four cold ones? If you count it up, and I've worked this through, this really is all the different permutations, you come up with 15 different ways. In other words, during the course of an hour, the bottle will only have, will have at least one cool atom in it for 56 minutes out of every hour. Because that's 14 fifteenths of an hour. The odds of looking at the room and seeing both the hot atoms in the bottle are 1 in 15. The fact that you never see hot atoms going back into the bottle is in fact not precisely true. It's just that you rarely see all the hot atoms going back in the bottle. If there's six atoms, rarely means 1 in 15. Now, if instead of six atoms you have 60 atoms, 40 of them hot and 20 of them cold, the odds of finding all 20 hot ones back in the bottle become not 1 in 15, but 1 in 4.2 quadrillion. Not likely. When you consider that a real bottle isn't going to have 2 atoms or 20 atoms, but something like 20,000 billion billion atoms, you get the idea. So, entropy is related to the odds of finding the atoms arrayed a certain way. The more random the arrangement, the harder it is to tell one arrangement from the other, and so the more likely that you're going to see something like a random arrangement, like your professor's office. The more special, the more structured, the more specifically defined a situation, the less likely you are to actually see it happen. Monkeys on a typewriter, monkeys on a computer trying to write Shakespeare. We say that entropy increases when a system goes from an ordered state to a disordered state. And that's the natural way for entropy to flow. Just look at your room for an example of that. Things don't spontaneously go back into the places where they belong. Because if they can move at random and there's only one place where they belong, the odds are they're going to be someplace else. Now, it is conceivable that you could figure out some way of separating the hot atoms from the cold atoms. It is conceivable that you could go into your room and clean it up. But all the ways that we can think of doing that to separate the hot from the cold take some kind of energy. What do I mean by taking energy? Most of us think of an engine as a device that does work, like moving your car, by burning up energy. But the first law of thermodynamics is energy doesn't get destroyed. You're not really burning up the energy. In a global sense, the energy is always there and it always has been and it always will be. But the energy has been moved around. An engine is just a device that gets work out of this natural motion of energy from a high energy, high entropy, you know, entropy state to a low energy, increased entropy state. For instance, if I had that pot of hot atoms and cold atoms and I had a little pinwheel in front of where the hot atoms were coming out. When the hot atoms came out, it would knock the pinwheel one way. A cold atom going in wouldn't undo the knock of the pinwheel. So the pinwheel would, would primarily flow in a certain direction. And I could get energy out as long as I had hot atoms in the bottle coming out of the bottle. When I run out of hot atoms, the pinwheel doesn't spin anymore. If I want to, I can have a very clever pinwheel that knocks the atoms back in, but I've got to be outside cranking the pinwheel to knock the hot atoms back into the bottle. That's, why, that's what I mean by taking energy. Another way, in order to do work, I have to have a flow of energy from a hot source to a cool source. And the cool source is just as important as the hot source. Without some place to dump the heat, the heat doesn't flow. Without the heat flowing, I can't get any work done. Every car engine has to have a radiator. 
Every power plant has to have a cooling tower. Without a place to dump the heat, the heat energy, heat engine doesn't work. And any engine that I can devise to move the hot atoms back into the pot, thus reversing entropy inside the room, can only work by consuming more energy. In other words, mixing up a larger number of hot and cold atoms someplace else, increasing the entropy of the universe. And you can even go on and argue that there's no temperature, there's no realm of temperatures where this law doesn't hold. You can't get out of the game. So what does this mean about the universe as a whole? All of life is the interplay between energy and entropy. Energy is produced and entropy is increased on a big scale like inside the sun. So it can be used elsewhere to locally reverse, at least temporarily, the inexorable growth of randomness. A plant or an animal, like a well-honed machine, only works when all the different pieces are kept separate and allowed to do their job. When they rust into each other, they don't work anymore. So long as we've got energy, we can reverse it. So a plant can take the energy from the sun, sort the chemicals out, allow itself to grow and develop. A cow can come along and eat the plant. You can come along and eat the cow, and that gives you the energy to clean up your room. But it also means that every time you're cleaning up your room, someplace else the entropy of the universe has increased. Stars are powered by nuclear reactions that release energy when the hydrogen is fused into helium and the helium is fused into carbon and so forth. And that only goes on so far because you stop getting energy when you have fusion that form, forms iron 56. Once a star has run out of hydrogen and helium, and we know how this works because we can do it in the lab, stars go through a death sequence. And you can actually see this happening. As this is a very, very young uh, planetary nebula. The inside of the star has ceased to form energy. It's collapsed. Stuff has bounced off. And these gases, which now have not only hydrogen and helium, but all the other elements, including iron and other things, get bounced out. And yeah, you can turn them into new stars. But this can only go on for so long. Once the sun's dead core cools off, it'll be nothing but an inert ember of iron. And even if the outer gases of the sun and all the other stars are spewed into space to make new stars, eventually that will happen to them too. Eventually, those stars will cool and fuse and puff and die, leaving nothing but a red giant. And meanwhile, of course, the universe continues to expand. As the starlight goes out into the ever-increasing void, it spreads its energy thinner and thinner. Eventually, inevitably, all the energy of the universe will be dissipated through space. All the mass turned into cold lumps of iron. No stars will shine. No sunshine will exist to fuel life. Eventually, even the most stable of the atomic particles in these inert atoms will decay into radiation that becomes more and more feeble as the space into which it radiates becomes bigger and bigger in the relentless expansion of the universe. It turns out that if you wait long enough, we've got eternity to wait, even the nuclei and the cold lumps of dead stars decay into radiation. Even the black holes eventually dissipate. Now, this may take a few hundred billion years or so, but it's going to happen eventually, assuming we've got the physics right. And if the universe keeps expanding, the radiation gets colder and colder. After all, the radiation of the Big Bang is already down to under three degrees. And once we're in that state of an expanding, empty universe with ever-expanding radiation, nothing more will happen. Nothing more can happen. There will be no reservoirs of hot energy, no sinks of cold energy, no way that you can run an engine by moving the energy from one to the other, no way to overcome entropy, we will have arrived at the heat death of the universe, and that's the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper.
And indeed, if you look at the amount of time when the universe is fresh enough to have stars still burning, planets full of life, compared to the amount of time when all the stars are out and all the radiation is left into nothing, you realize that we, right now, in this life-filled Earth, are nothing but the universe in its raucous, fecund infancy. Most of the time, in this view, indeed for most of eternity, the universe will be nothing but an ever-quiet whimper. Right? Or will it? What does Christianity say about the end of the universe? Actually, less than you might think. Or maybe more than you might think. It depends on what you think. Throughout the ages, people have kind of hoped for an eternal afterlife, while other people have hoped at least to live on in another kind of immortality, the immortality of their achievements, or the immortality of having offspring who have offspring who have offspring. But in the global sense, even that kind of immortality is limited. OK, everybody here still remembers Julius Caesar. 2,000 years have passed since Brutus and Cassius did him in. But sooner or later, not only is his body turned to dust, but every book that he wrote will be turned to dust. Every book with his name in it will be turned to dust will at best be left on the surface of some cold, starless planet. The same laws of entropy apply to anything that we're hoping would give us immortality here in this universe. If the universe is fated to a heat death, then no kind of living eternity is possible in nature. Ah, there's the trick. It's not possible in nature. Oh, so it's supernatural. Well, that's easy. We've solved that one. The split of, a, of the world into a natural world and a supernatural world, it's such an obvious answer to the problem that, you know, most Christians don't really worry about the heat death of the universe because we're not talking about that universe. I've got some supernatural future that I'm worried about. The interesting thing is this split of the universe into a natural and a supernatural is really the product of 17th century thought. It's not traditional Christianity. It comes more out of this mechanistic Newtonian universe view, which split the universe of religion from the universe of physics. But that's not Christianity. Anybody here remember seeing the guy who used to show up at the, at the football games with the big sign that says John 316? Yeah? Anybody here know what John 3.16 is? We've got some Protestants here. I don't expect the Catholics to know the Bible, but yeah. There, there's, there's a phrase you're missing. Let's see if anyone can, yeah, back there. God so loved the world. That's it. According to Genesis, this book that the fundamentalists would like to use as their science book, God creates the universe and at the end of each day says, this is good. Not only this is good, but God so loved the world that he became incarnate in it. This is what Christianity is telling you. Believe it or not, that's what, they're trying to, that's, that's what we're trying to sell. If God becomes part of the physical universe, St. Athanasius says in a book on the incarnation about 300 AD, the universe itself has become sacred. It has become cleansed and quickened. In Christianity, the physical universe matters. It's something that God loves. Indeed, if our experience of death is supposed to be just supernatural, then how come when Jesus talks about life after death, he actually doesn't use the phrase life after death. He uses the phrase eternal life. Why does it say that when he does rise from the dead, that, you know, the gospel story is that he's around in a body so physical that he can have dinner with a bunch of friends, in a body so physical that you can touch it? And yet, if this physical world does have eternal meaning, how do you reconcile that 
with the scientific result that predicts, at best, a gloomy and boring end of the universe. The creed that Christians claim that this is what they believe in says that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and his reign will have no end. You know, if Jesus is going to be around reigning eternally, I should hope that there's going to be more for him to reign over than just lumps of iron. And so this means not only that Christ, but we too are expected to be around eternally, to be reigned over, if nothing else. Now that you and I have come into the universe, apparently, according to this creed, we're going to be stuck around and stuck, sticking around and stuck with each other forever. It's interesting, Christ's resurrection is never actually described in the New Testament. The Gospels only talk about discovering the empty tomb. They talk about people seeing him in a body that's the same but different. It's, it's, what does this resurrection actually mean? The discovery of the empty tomb, the appearance of the risen Christ eating and drinking and able to be touched, you're doubting Thomas there, it's clearly supposed to indicate that the resurrection is not something merely spiritual. It concerns him in his bodily reality. There is a fundamental identity between the guy who got crucified and the guy who's there with the, the hole in his side that you can stick your finger in. At the same time, the resurrection isn't just the zombie Christ going around, you know, he's still alive. Because the body's different. The New Testament reports are the risen Christ who even his closest friends don't recognize right away. He's able to appear and disappear inside of rooms and come and go in ways that the ordinary body doesn't. The Christian view is that the death of a human individual doesn't mean the person is completely dissolved until the resurrection happens. In contrast to other religions, you know, we are not souls that are drops that become drops into a giant ocean where we're all sort of mixed together and lose our identity. That's not what Christianity says. How do you reconcile that with the scientific view? The church insists on an identity and a continuity between the guy who died and whatever happens at the end of time. The way that the philosophers a thousand years ago worked this out was to borrow something from Greek and medieval philosophy called the soul. But what the heck do we mean by a soul? Now the idea of a soul worked pretty well if you were a scholastic philosopher and you're in the Middle Ages and you were steeped in the language of form versus matter that Aristotelian philosophy uses. Because given that mind frame, you could see how you could make a universe that has matter that is given a form by something which is other than this matter. And whatever we meet there is this animated, uh, whatever, whatever is giving the, the, the form, the, form to the matter is what you could call the soul. But even this is a philosophical convention. You don't find it in the Bible. You find it in Thomas Aquinas, but it's a later edition. It's a later philosophical way of reconciling the best thought of their day with the religious truths that they said, we're stuck with these religious truths and we don't really understand them, but this is what Jesus was telling us that if we're going to follow him, you know, you got to take it seriously even if I don't know what the heck it means. Can we come up with a more modern analogy? Can we come up with an analogy that's more useful for people who are not schooled in medieval philosophy and theology? What if you think of the soul as sort of like an analogy of the data on a computer? Like all analogies, if you push it too far, it's going to fall apart. But I want to use this analogy as a way of showing how you approach some of the issues that come up. Let, let's say you and I own identical computers. I know my computer is different from your computer because of the, the scratch marks on it, because I dropped it and there's a big dent in the side. Aside from that, the only thing that makes my computer different from your computer are the things on the hard drive. I've got a completely different set of files than you've got. I may even have a completely different operating system than what you've got. But it's not a matter of physical difference. The computers could be identical models, have exactly the same size, shape, weight, so on. The only physical difference is that certain metal grains representing ones and zeros are arrayed differently on my hard drive compared to the ones on your hard drive. 
The real difference between the computers is in the ideas present, which are represented by those grains of iron in the hard drive. You might say each computer thinks different. But this difference can't be found except in the most subtle difference in grains that represent the ones and zeros. And the ones and zeros by themselves have no significance except in terms of the operating system that interprets them. And even the operating system can only translate the ones and zeros into little bits of light on the screen, which we human beings can identify as letters or words or pictures, which it takes a human intellect to interpret as ideas. Consider how the subtlety of this point has led to all sorts of interesting issues involving copyright law. When you buy a piece of software or a music CD or a video or a DVD or just even a plain old ordinary fashioned old book, no one denies that you own the physical piece of paper and glue, but you don't own the ideas encoded in the medium. You don't own the words. The point is to draw a distinction between the wetware of the human animal, our bodies, and the ideas and memories and emotions and the self-awareness, what Thomas Aquinas called intellect and free will of the human person. Defining the soul as intellect and free will is a useful definition that goes back to Thomas Aquinas, but in another sense, it also is artificial. The soul, like the program in a computer, has no physical existence without the physical existence of the body containing and operating on it. And yet, just as the idea behind a computer program could continue to exist long after every computer designed to run it has been made obsolete and sent to the junkyard, and I have friends who wrote software in the 80s who've written software just like that. There's no computer around that runs them anymore. In the same way, is a person's awareness and free will something that can survive the destruction of the body? Okay, you, you imagine some science fiction world where I've stored them on a computer. What if I'm God? What if I don't need a computer to store them on? Yeah, this is an analogy. I'm not saying that souls are like programs. I'm saying this is a way to try to think about the issue of something that is definitely real, a computer program, you gotta pay money to get it, it's real, but it's not physical, because it's not the bits of metal that you bought when you bought the disc that has bits of metal in it. Is a computer program that's been copied to another disc the same program as the original disc? Is someone transported by a Star Trek transporter beam, dissolved at one end, reassembled at the other end, the same person at the other end of the transporter? What happens if you make two copies? Is the body at the end of time the same as the body that a person has when death occurs? What do we mean by same? My dad, yesterday, celebrated his 90th birthday. Bought himself a new computer, a Mac, by the way. Great guy, and you know, just doing great. I am sure that there is probably not an atom left in his body that was there 90 years ago when he was born. And yet no one doubts that this is the same person. On the other hand, if I've got a Windows machine and I replace just a couple of pieces of it, Bill Gates is going to demand another set of money from me to run software because there's always a different machine now. Where do you draw the line? With these speculations, I think you can begin to appreciate the importance of the physical body, not just the soul, in defining the individual. In the time to be passed from the end of a person's life until the resurrection of the body at the end of time, can the human soul be thought of? Does it exist like the idea of a poem that's not written down, even if there isn't any materialization? Or in the absence of a physical expression, is the whole existence of time itself meaningless. It's clear, if nothing else, that to trying to derive a scientific physical implication for the end of the universe from religious principles is hopeless. But there is at least one important implication 
for the science in all of this. That clearly the physical science by itself isn't the whole story. Back in the days, 150 years ago, when we had Newton's laws of physics, and the universe was mechanical, and human beings were just one more complicated machine as part of the machinery, it seemed like there was no room in the universe for the action of some god acting as free will, or indeed, room for any other creature with free will. The most they could imagine God doing back in those days was to you know, wind up the universe like a clock and let it run. The rest was all determined by the laws of physics. The very molecules in your brain that are making you decide that I'm full of nonsense are actually controlled by the laws of chemistry, which are just physics after all. As, as uh, Kepler once said, all of science is either physics or stamp collecting. And the laws of physics are inexorable. You tell me exactly the location and exactly the forces, and I will tell you exactly what will happen and where each little chemical in your little brain is going to go, and that's why you're laughing, because I've made the chemicals do this. It was inevitable. You couldn't stop yourself. There is no free will. Well, even beyond the fact that that kind of physics doesn't work anymore, because we know at the quantum level that's all nonsense, there's another problem. The problem in using Newton's materialistic, physical, deterministic laws, which are pretty darn good after all, the law of cause and effect is a hard law to get around. And it does make bridges that don't fall down. But the trouble with using that, extrapolating out to make big, bigger statements about how the universe works, is that like every logical system, it starts with an assumption. And the assumption is the law of cause and effect. By assuming a materialistic, deterministic universe, you can describe the universe as, by golly, deterministic and materialistic. What a surprise. All you have done is to recover the assumption you started with. It's popular to think that the revolution of quantum mechanics has gotten around this problem. And so instead of blind cause and effect, you've got blind chance. And so stuff happens, and it's all random. Again, all you're doing is recovering the assumption you started with. If you assume the universe is at fundamentally random, then you can, by a golly at the end of the day, if you've got a, a tightly enough logical system, show that huh, the universe is random. All you've done is to recover your assumption. On the other hand, you can look at the universe and you see, oh, it's beautiful. It is so intricately designed. How could this be anything other than the work of a loving and beneficent designer? And it's just as flawed as the others. Of course the mechanistic universe is deterministic because determinism was the essential assumption. Of course the quantum universe is ruled by chance because chance was the assumption we started with. In both cases, we haven't proved anything. And just in the same way, the designer god is another axiom. If you believe in a good god, you're going to see evidence of a good god in front of you all over the place. I mean, good god, look at it. But that's not a proof. All you've shown is that it's a self-consistent way of looking at the universe. All you're doing is recovering your assumption. It doesn't count as a proof. The bigger trouble is that the failure of these assumptions, like the failure of Newton's laws, are likely to occur precisely when we're extrapolating from the everyday world to the extreme cases. And whether the extreme case is the end of the universe 100 billion years from now, or the meaning of, ultimate meaning of the fate of the soul, are exactly the kinds of extreme questions where we should be most cautious in extrapolating from our scientific experience. Because that's exactly where our assumptions are most likely going to fail us. And yet, there is an interaction between the way we look at ourselves and the universe in a philosophical sense and the way we do it in science. Each of them can learn by analogy from how the other one operates. 
Neither of them should assume that they've got the whole story. Neither of them should assume that they can trump the other side. You know, there were really good people walking this universe, saints, before Newton or Einstein or George Lemaitre was able to explain it. Understanding calculus may be a prerequisite to graduating from Yale, but it is not a prerequisite to gaining the kingdom of heaven. Is it a prerequisite of graduating? Oh, boy, what kind of college is this? <laughs> now, MIT, is a, there is a college. The point is, even Yale graduates could achieve heaven. No, I guess that doesn't work either. <laughs> On the other hand, so what? You don't have to know physics. You don't have to know calculus in order to achieve the kingdom of heaven. Still, a god who created the universe of Georges Lemaitre has got to be seen as a whole lot bigger, a whole lot more subtle, a whole lot more elegant than the nature gods of the Babylonians, which was all that they knew back when they were writing the books of Genesis. Philosophy alone could never have conceived of the richness of the universe that science has revealed to us. And yet, by the very fact that the physical science can't even begin to handle the existence of free will, shows that science in its turn is incomplete. You know, if the point of science, like any other human endeavor, is to provide us a reflection of our universe, then science has left out a big chunk of some of the best part of the universe. And you know what? That's okay. The whole genius of art, true art, whether it's a painting or a novel or drama or music, is to select and arrange. A videotape is not the same thing as history. The genius of human understanding is to choose what to study and what you're going to set aside. A science that tried to cover everything wouldn't be science anymore, wouldn't be art. Even within science, what do we astronomers do? We use filters to filter out the light we're not interested in so we can concentrate on the bits that we are interested in. So we can look at one phenomenon at a time. Van Gogh's paintings are not photographs. It's up to us to take these odd colors and splashy bits of paint and to add in our own imagination to complete the picture. In that way, the picture and a little bit of the painter enters into our soul. In the same way, the scientific painting of the universe has deliberately set aside a whole lot of the best parts about being alive, and that's not to criticize it any more than I would say, oh, what the heck kind of painting is that of France? There's no wine there. There's no loaf of bread. You know, France without wine and bread, what's the point? No, you don't expect every Van Gogh to come with a jug of wine and a loaf of bread. By limiting itself, the scientific portrait of the universe allows us to bring to the surface other equally pleasing facets of existence that you might not have noticed otherwise. For instance, the, the order, the reassuring predictability of nature, the logic that allows gloriously complicated things like stars and galaxies to arise from the simplest of scientific principles. Our final resolution about how the human person incarnate in a universe that appears to be destined to a final state of heat death, nonetheless obtains an eternal life with God, who is himself both eternal and incarnate in the universe, as well as being outside of space and time. And there's no simple theological way that you can fit that all together. The best you can do is to speak of poetry, speak of paradoxes, speak of bodies that are the same as they were before but different. It's paradoxical. It's not to say it's unreal. It's not to say it's even unfamiliar. We can understand that in some sense, the center of the human identity, call it a soul if you want, can maintain a hypothetical existence even in the absence of a particular physical manifestation in the same way that a song or a poem can remain even after all copies of it have been destroyed. Maybe it is in the power of abstract ideas, in the nature of words itself, that we can get our best analogy to understand how, can, how we can exist, 
even when our bodies turn to dust. Maybe we've been given our clearest hint from the guy who, as a Christian, I believe, was the first example of that eternal physical existence. Jesus himself, before his death and resurrection, put it very simply, put it very directly. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thank you very much. Brother Guy Consolmagno, distinguished guest and planetary scientist at the Vatican Observatory, discusses religious and scientific views of the end of the universe at the second Schulman Lecture of 2008 at the Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University. This lecture was presented in the spring of 2008 as part of the distinguished Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. These lectures were established to honor Robert Schulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. Brother Consomano spoke on April 8, 2008 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.